Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Rudd Center podcast series. My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where I'm also professor of psychology and epidemiology and public health. Today, I'm joined by my colleague at the Rudd Center, Jennifer Pomeranz, an attorney and an expert in public health who um, is the director of legal initiatives at the Rudd Center. And our special guest is our speaker for today, Stephen Sugarman. Uh, Steve Sugarman is an associate dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law, where he is also the Roger Trainer Professor of Law. He's thought a great deal about the application of law to public health. He's worked in a variety of areas, including child welfare, school choice, and perhaps most pertinent to our discussion today, tobacco policy. But he's also thought a great deal about the application of the law to issues of nutrition and obesity and has come up with some very novel approaches. So, Steve, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Kelly. It's my pleasure. I'd like to begin by quoting uh, something from a paper you wrote in, in the Legal Times published in 2005, which I think sets the stage for thinking about the, the application of the law and government policy. Here's what you said. Some blame childhood, the childhood obesity problem on undisciplined youth and their indulgent parents, just as they are apt to blame children and their parents for teen drug use, drinking, pregnancy, and the like. But from the public health perspective, shaking one's head over family failure is not enough when there are measures that can effectively address the problem. So what are some of these measures that might effectively address the problem? And how do you think we can proceed in a better way than just pointing our fingers at people and focusing on personal responsibility? I think it's important to focus on the reality that food and beverage companies in America know that their selling products, which they profit, which are leading to very negative health outcomes for at least some important share of Americans, and especially uh, young uh, people, children, they have a tremendous amount of extra childhood disease, childhood diabetes, for example. They have explosion in childhood obesity rates. We have general bad health outcomes for children that are at least in some respect importantly attributable to the food that they eat. And I think we need to reframe the problem around industry responsibility instead of family responsibility. First of all, I think it is industry's responsibility. And I think we can call on industry to use its inv innovative and creative ways to try to contribute, not to eliminate the problem, but to substantially reduce the problem and thereby we could get very large public health gains that we're failing to achieve. And in the childhood health area, we're perhaps moving in the wrong direction. Childhood obesity rates, as you know, are dramatically up over the last generation. It leads nicely to my next question. You have proposed what I think is one of the most creative views of this on the scene now, having to deal with performance-based regulation that focuses on not so much regulating industry's practices as focusing on specific outcomes. Tell us about that approach. Well, many people today say one thing we ought to do about child health with respect to nutrition is get Cokes and get Pepsis out of the schools. Um, this might be a good idea. Um, we don't really know, honestly, whether we can, how much 
doing so actually affects uh, children's uh, health. I think it would be great for us to study this, try this in a serious experimental way and with serious evaluation, but we don't know. And so my approach is not to focus on these, what I call command and control or input type regulations change accessibility in effect to certain kinds of food products, but instead tell Coke and Pepsi, look, those schools where your products are being sold have a lots of kids who have unhealthy conditions. Let's, for these purposes, say high obesity rates. We want you to take responsibility for lowering the obesity rates in those schools. Um, if, if the way to do that is to get Cokes out of, and other sweet beverage out of the vending machines or uh, improve the food in the cafeteria, fine. If there's other ways to do it, you got to take responsibility and figure that out. That's the idea, to get, to get to the, right to the bottom line. Industry is very good at focusing on the bottom line. For them, the bottom line is profit. And what we say to them, you're going to get substantial financial penalties unless you take responsibility for having better health outcomes for the kids who are using what you, what you um, sell. So now the prevailing approach, although this isn't working very well either, at least at the moment, is for the outside people, outside from the industry, scientists, the public health community, and legislators, to come up with ideas for, for changing industry behavior and then impose that on the industry. The industry, of course, is not wanting this, and so they say, well, we can police ourselves, so let's let self-regulation work. But you're saying the, the a lot of the creativity and the problem-solving may come from industry itself as long as they have strict outcomes that they have to create. Is that correct? Yes. I think it's um, not good enough to say to the industry, well, um, you just we'll let you go. We'll let you f- try to figure out what to do because the industry is interested in the bottom line. They have a lot of other objectives and not only healthy children as their objective. And so I don't think that's going to work. If they say, oh, don't force us to take, uh, um, don't, don't you decide what's sold in the vending machines. Let us decide what's in the vending machines. One thing that I fear that, that what they end up getting, so we get Coca-Cola with a few electrolytes in it. And that's just probably, and they sell it as a sports drink. This is probably not very helpful, I mean, unlikely to be. So, but if if we tell the industry, look, yeah, you can take responsibility, but you've got to get really achieve real public health gains, that I think is a very different. That's not that's relying on industry, but relying on industry with a real bite, with a real stick, as to you achieve these results or bad things will happen to you. I mean, that I think is a very different a different approach, and it's the approach that we're beginning to I think beginning to deal think about dealing with the. Uh, climate change, a global warming problem. We're going to say to industry, look, you're responsible for all this CO2 emissions and other problems with the air, so you have to take responsibility for figuring out how to change that. And uh, so I would say I think it's that kind of attitude. In a way, it's the same attitude that we've not altogether successfully, I should confess, uh, in the schools saying, with no child left behind. You schools Come on, you're the experts on education, but you've got. We want real outcomes now. We don't. We're not satisfied. Class sizes, fooling with class size might be a good or bad idea, but what we want in the end is kids to learn better. We don't. Whether they have bigger, small classes is incidental, and let you figure that out. But we want to insist upon outcomes, and that's what I think we should tell industry. We want to insist upon outcomes in the public health domain. Are there any precedents where you've seen this work successfully? You mentioned No Child Left Behind, where you know it's partially successful, partially not. 
Um, and you mentioned the pollution and the global warming issue, well, there, too. Yes, there are some experiences with, um, with pollution, in fact, that I think many people would say are successful or have, through modification, become successful, in which, for example, in a, in a particular community with a lot of fixed emission sources, the main important polluters are told, look, every year we're going to reduce the total amount of pollution that you're allowed to emit in this community, this base in this region, by 20 percent or whatever some such number gets agreed to. And uh, you have to figure out how to do it, whether you want to, you know, change your fuel mixture, or add new scrubbers, or uh, make less power, whatever it is you want to do, you figure out how to get the emissions left. And you have to work in cooperation with the other fixed emission source, the other power plants, for example. And if they can do it better than you, then you sort of buy up the, you, um, you know, you have them do it and they, you pay them to cover your reduction for you. But the total net effect is a reduction in pollution. I think we've seen this working and I think we're seeing more people convinced that's the way to deal with a lot of complicated pollution problems. And so I, my hope would be that we could imagine ways of doing this for the, um, uh, food and beverage industry as well. Okay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Jennifer Pomerantz, the Rudd Center Director of Legal Initiatives, is with us, and I know she has a question about parallels with possible parallels with tobacco. Thank you, Kelly. Steve, what would you consider the most important lessons you've learned about the application of law to the tobacco control movement? One thing we know through serious research efforts is that some legal initiatives with respect to tobacco control work a lot better than others. Um, high taxes reduce um, smoking prevalence rates. Rigorous controls on smoking at the workplace, not only, uh, and, and in public places as well, bars and restaurants, other public civic places, not only protect employees and from health, serious health risks and protect customers from health risks and annoyances of smoking, they actually cause a reduction in smoking rates. People, when they can't smoke in all these places, a lot of people stop. These things work. Counter vigorous, nasty, counter-advertising works. Other things don't work nearly as well. Education in schools probably don't work, doesn't work nearly as well. Uh, attempts to prevent young people from buying cigarettes probably works not nearly as well. Anyway, the point is that some things are, and it's really important to engage in serious academic independent policy research on evaluating which are the things to help policymakers decide. That, that's one thing we've learned. The other thing we've learned is that although we've had a dramatic reduction in smoking prevalence rates in this society compared with 40 years ago, from more than 45 percent to now slightly under 20 percent of adults smoking, we are uh, still a long way from and seem to be running out of obvious ways that we can get the adult smoking prevalence rates down below 10 percent, which is a long-time public health goal. And I think we could ought to think about trying to use performance-based regulation, my idea that I've suggested for the food world as well to the tobacco world. We could ask tobacco companies to reduce smoking rates. They'd, all they'd have to do is shed customers. They know how to do that. They know how to get customers. They know how to lose customers. And they could, they could reduce smoking rates if they have that responsibility in a dramatic way. Um, maybe it's time to think about something bolder there as well. So would you suggest your plan in combination with those um, 
things that have already worked in tobacco for the food industry or your plan solely uh, instead in lieu of those things? Well, ideally, I suppose I'd like a kind of complex social experiment. Let's try my plan in some countries or in some parts of this country and these other plans elsewhere. Uh, What we unfortunately don't really know very much yet about is whether, if it's obesity is the target for the moment here, whether or not um, getting rid of cokes in the schools or whether or not um, getting rid of certain kinds of advertising to children through television or whether or not um, certain kind of taxes on junk food, how much difference they would make. I mean, there's some beginning to be research uh, that try to project from so-called natural experiments and other things. We don't have any serious real evaluation of real controlled intervention efforts. I think it'd be good to do that. and But until we do that and find out, I'm... Uh, don't think I don't know how we can be optimistic to be confident that these these are conventional regulatory input strategies, and to be confident that we've got the right ones. I'm not at all sure we did. So I'm nervous about spending all of our time experimenting with things that sound plausibly promising, but may not actually make any difference. Should kids be required to have serious exercise at school 40 minutes a day? It sounds good. Maybe they should in any event for other values, but it's not clear that this is that this is a kind of a strategy that affects the number of kids with diabetes. I mean, I just don't know that. We don't we need to we need to know more about this. So I think it's good and if we're thinking of trying out different children's health intervention strategies in this realm, I'd like to tr- have us try out the performance-based strategy, the outcomes strategy as well. Steve, to follow up on the tobacco parallels, the uh, the state attorneys general got quite involved with tobacco and some people believe made a big difference. Uh, some of the state attorneys general have contacted us to talk about um, parallels with the food, nutrition, and obesity area. Could you tell us the role you feel that, that they played as a group in the tobacco arena and whether you think there might be parallels into the nutrition and obesity arena? Well, the attorney, state attorneys general uh, unquestionably uh, extracted substantial monies from the tobacco industry, which were paid out, which have been and continue to be paid out to the states um, as though they were a 40 cent tax on a per pack of cigarettes. And that's the master settlement. And in the master settlement agreement that was entered into by now eight or so years ago, this was agreed to. And this was good for tobacco control in the sense that a 40% tax on cigarettes would be good. It reduces consumption. Um, produces consumption, and some of it is people stop smoking. Some people smoke less, but which may not make a lot of difference if you already smoke three packs a day and you go to two, but some people stop. That's certainly clearly beneficial. Um, the um, So they did accomplish that. That was good. There are lots of behavioral changes that they insisted upon that the tobacco companies do, restricting their marketing strategies. I'm not at all confident that those have been had any important effect, and I think the research is equally skeptical, because the tobacco companies have switched to nearly as effective alternative uh, marketing efforts. So that's an example in which certain command and control type, precise input type regulations that were part of the master settlement agreement probably haven't accomplished a lot. I know there are a lot of people think that those aspects of the master settlement agreement we should perhaps just give up on and work on and work on other things. Um, the, um, 
What I think is more delicate is whether the litigation somehow exposed the tobacco industry, made them vulnerable, made everybody realize about uh, the, the facts of the industry that hadn't been so publicly vivid before, the sort of transparency about uh, um, statements the industry tried to hide behind. We don't market to kids. We don't think smoking is addictive. We don't even think smoking is harmful. I mean, these which no, I don't think public health people all would imagine are plausibly true, but I think some of the expose of their files and so on, various things, it's th I thought by some to have somehow made the industry more vulnerable and allowed some kind of legislative changes that we wouldn't have otherwise achieved, which is an interesting argument, and it may or may not be right. Um, we haven't really achieved any important federal legislation to, with respect to tobacco, although it's at this very moment Congress may well pass a bill giving the Food and Drug Administration uh, authority to regulate tobacco, which would be a substantial change. But um, So the regulation we've really had is uh, of tobacco has been at the state and especially at the local level. And this is a res maybe a response I should have said when Jen asked me before about lessons from tobacco control. One thing I think many people feel is that it's local, um, bottom-up type stuff that's made a big difference. First of all, the tobacco industry, and I suspect as well the food industry, is less politically powerful at the local level because they can't cover all those thousands of local jurisdictions in the way they can cover Congress and 50 states. And also you get more diversity, more experimentation, different kind of ideas tried out if you do it locally. People can learn one community from the next in ways that they feel good about, they, that they may not be the same if it comes down from, from Washington. Uh, in any event, getting something down from Washington isn't all that easy, as I say, despite the, these attorney general suits. So what's good about attorneys general is they're state-level actors. And although they, and although they, um, the master settlement was a national deal, the enforcement of, the, of it is done at the local level. And I know in California, where I, where I live, um, we, our state attorney general staff has been very vigorous in making sure the industry lives up to what it promises. And... Um, if they've got a bunch of other lawyers who are learning about tobacco issues and have gotten involved on other questions that aren't even involved in the master settlement agreement that are important. For example, one problem, I said taxes work, but people are buying untaxed cigarettes over through um, Native American reservation sellers over the Internet. So what do you do about this? I mean, this is a serious problem. The Native American tribes have certain sovereignties, rights, but on the other hand, or undo, it can be undermining the health effects of higher taxes. So the attorney generals are working together to try to do something about this, get the, uh, the delivery companies and the credit card companies to cooperate in trying to prevent this evasion. So there are, there are things the attorney generals are active in, in, the t in the tobacco area, and I think they could potentially play an active role in the uh, in child obesity problem as well. They can they could go after what they view as misleading uh, kinds of behaviors by coming. They surely have the power to do that. If it were true that the food industry had been engaged in a certain kind of general deceit, they could try to expose that. They could also engage in other kinds of campaign. One of the attorneys general with whom I met just this week suggested the idea that the attorneys general could attorney general in any given state could help work with local um, or state uh, um, purchasing uh, authorities saying, okay, if you want to sell food to our state, to our schools or to our prisons or to our hospitals or something, 
good, we'll buy from you, but you've got to take responsibility for helping us solve this problem we have. So maybe we're going to give you five or six schools with high obesity rates, and you do something about that if you want to have a contract to sell us whatever this food you're selling us. And maybe that'd be an interesting way the Attorney General could work out what the state regime would look like for that. that they could probably help in a very helpful way participate. So, Steve, before I ask you the last question, I'd like to follow up on your comment about local versus federal action. The very same phenomenon that you've talked about in tobacco seems to be playing out in the nutrition and obesity area where the federal government talks a good game but has really done very little on this, this front. You have some exceptions. The CDC has done good work. And you have some people in the Senate, like Tom Harkin from Iowa, who's been very progressive with his ideas, but thus far has only been able to slowly build support. And hopefully it'll reach some critical mass and we'll get federal action. But so far, the real innovation has occurred at state and local levels. And I think it's for the, some of the reasons you mentioned, the, the food industry has a harder time fighting off these actions one by one when they're happening at local and state levels, and they're less able to influence the political process. And also, you get this groundswell of local support for these things, like cleaning up the nutrition environment in schools that has become so helpful. So I think we see some very interesting lessons from tobacco that gets applied. The one um, final question I wanted to ask, and then I'll do a little summary, is um, the role that litigation plays here. And um, I've heard you speak and write about this and um, feeling not optimistic that suing anybody is going to have much of an impact here. Could you expand on that a little bit and explain your feelings on that? Well, childhood obesity is a very much a multi-source uh, problem. And although I suppose we can imagine there are a few people who only eat Burger King every three meals a day, every day of their life, I mean, that's not really what the social reality is for people. And so um, to, to, to try through a lawsuit to identify a single um, company as somehow responsible for a single child as a... Uh, uh, having a health problem because of the food consumption is not going to work. Um, and in any event, this is not a problem that should be attacked, I think, child by child. That's part of the public health lesson. We want to uh, solve this in a sort of a wide society, society way. So I'm not optimistic uh, um, about that. Also, um, a lot of children have are become seri seriously at risk of future adult problems. They have high blood pressure. They have signs of early onset childhood diabetes and so on. But suing them for damages usually means they already have, I mean, the classical use of it is they already have some serious consequential harm. So we don't want to wait around for that to happen. We want to do something something earlier. So I'm not, just, I'm not sure that that kind of litigation, individual, like individual suing, like individual suing of tobacco companies by smokers, which itself, by the way, has been not very successful. I mean, in 50 years, we have a handful or two handful of successful actual jury verdicts or actual results against individual claimants, cl individual claimants against tobacco companies. So I don't see that. Now, as I say, the attorney general coming in with something attacking fraudulent behavior, using the courts to hold down some misleading, nobody wants their kids to be misled by advertising. Um, and if that's what companies are doing, then it's a good thing to use litigation in the sense of having the, the government lawyers come in and say, stop this, stop this uh, kind of thing. If they, if they, um, there could be other kinds of marketing placement uh, arrangements in stores and so on that could be thought to be unfair. Unfair um, is another notion that 
state attorney generals usually have is authority under their powers to prevent unfair business practices. So that could be another goal. So I, it's, it's not as though going to court is necessarily uh, bad. Uh, it's just that I'm not sure individual lawsuits by individual individual families is the is a very helpful uh, prospect here. Thank you. Um, again, this podcast is part of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our website is www.yaleruddcenter.org, yaleruddcenter.org, a website filled with helpful information about food and food policy and links to this podcast and others that the Rudd Center has put together. I'd like to thank my colleague, Jennifer Pomerantz, Director of Legal Initiatives at the Rudd Center, and especially our guest, uh, Stephen Sugarman, uh, Professor of Law and Associate Dean at the University of California School of Law. Steve, thank you so much for your contribution, your innovation, and what I think is really one of the most interesting ideas on the scene at the moment. Well, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about my ideas.